you know, conservation efforts have been around for a long time, but I think this is the first generation that really maybe understands that it's a real threat now. Like not, not the, not the wildlife being a threat, but the, our ability to participate in it. I was back with my folks in Minnesota over the holiday and I asked my grandpa, do you ever think hunting won't be a thing? And he said, what do you mean? And then I asked my dad the same question. He said, yeah, I could see it. And then you ask somebody that's my age and they're saying, yeah, we got to fight for that stuff. Yeah. So just that generational gap of like, my grandpa didn't even know what the hell I was talking about. He's like, well, we've always hunted. We'll always be able to hunt. That's the way it is. My dad gets it. I think future generations are just going to hunt through virtual reality. Yeah, I know. We've talked about this too. I mean, it's right there. Yeah, we're close. We're not far off. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Where have your travels taken you uh, in the last 12 months? 110 days. I did the math the other day. 110 days on the road. Yeah, 110 days gone. Okay. You know, we do everything from basically from western whitetail, waterfowl, um, you name it, everything in between. So it takes us coast to coast, essentially. Yeah. So I was from the farthest east I went was uh, Mississippi this year. Um, And then we did a ton of stuff in Idaho, Oregon, um, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico. Been on a lot of cool things this year. Did you look into, and I've talked about it before, but did you look into those stats at all that uh, Onyx published? Yeah, I read that report. Very interesting stuff. Super right? interesting. Yeah. What did that tell you about sort of the the state of the union? Do you, do you feel like there was any surprises in there? I mean, this is your job to know about. Yeah, you know, I think, James, the, the interesting part is it's things we know and see every day, but when you put it out to the the majority of the industry there's a lot of people that might find some surprises like in my line of work we understand that a lot of our customers are new to the to the pursuit in general not just not just like a new elk hunter from the midwest but somebody who's never owned a firearm in their entire life nor did their parents or their their grandparents or whatever so i think that to me is is not surprising i think that probably we know that more license licenses are being sold more people are in the woods you hear it, right, from guys that have been at the same elk camp for, you know, 30 years. I, I think the most interesting thing to me was when they broke down um, the difference in the general idea of why they're in the woods, right? 
and it's it's simply about the food like overwhelmingly right what's interesting about the generational gap though is like the guys that are younger than you and me uh skewed harder towards like doing it for the trophy quality right Right. or like i'm gonna kill a 300 inch bull or a 200 inch mule deer or whatever the stat is right whereas like folks that are what we call like adult adult onset hunters or new folks new to the new to the space new to the pursuit um they seemingly saw some scary shit happen in 2020 and they need to know where their food comes from in a big way bigger i think than maybe even the uh food to table uh movement that we both saw you know as we were growing up i I think they want to know not only where their food comes from but they want to be a part of it yeah but yeah i think the biggest thing to me the surprise anyway to bring it all back around is just the the notion that potentially a, a younger generation is actually concerned about, yeah, I want to kill a big bull or a big deer or a big goat or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be interesting. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting that the biggest growth centers were the Midwest and the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense to me though. Right. Um, generally higher populations and the South is an interesting market because of any place in the country, the tradition of hunting and fishing there is from the dawn of time you know and you could say the same about people coming to the west and and filtering into the midwest but um, folks down there take it seriously i think there's probably been a a gap between your grandpa doing it and maybe you were the first generation to go off to college and then you got a job in the city and then you just did it maybe on the weekends casually and now people are coming back to it which i think is good for everybody the divide in in the tradition of hunting seems to me to be sort of did this place develop industrially or not? Mm. And the places without industry always had this rural backbone that included hunting. Mm -hmm. And the places that developed industry really went away from that. Not to say that there aren't still plenty of, of outdoorsmen in those areas, but when you think about places with a, with a culture that's seeped in hunting, um, Seeped? Steeped? steeped? Like steeped. tea. Like tea. I think steeped. I was Seep? missing a T. Seeped is something lot, else. I make up a lot of words. So. You know, words <laughs> it's are your own hard. damn show. You can make, <laughs> make up words. <laughs> oh, they are hard. Math is hard, too. We're just talking Mat- about that. Yeah. Some maths are easier than others. <laughs> When's the last time you used algebra out there in the real world, in the you know, wild? <laughs> you're going to bring this up because there's been some great memes about like, teach me how to do taxes or how to buy a house or Dude. how to measure square footage. And it's like e equals MC squared. Like, what? yeah. And then the, my favorite is like, you're never going to have a computer in your pocket or a calculator in your pocket. Yeah. Sure enough. Yeah. Sure enough. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Although yeah. if I, I'll admit that if I turn my calculator phone sideways, there's some stuff on there that I forgot <laughs> what that means. The or, little squiggly. Or what, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of squiggles. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's some <laughs> like Egyptian looking things in yeah, there. Not for me. Speaking of Egyptian things. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, Jason Wright, uh, who I think you've met. He's the VP of marketing yeah. for SIG. Freaking great guy. He went to, uh, went, went to Egypt this summer and no he's kidding. like, he had the place to himself. Like nobody was yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> so, Not like a top destination in July, let alone during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he's in these, <laughs> these tombs and pyramids and it's like him and the mummy kind of <laughs> chatting it up. But he showed me a picture that he took of, you know, the, I don't know, are they petroglyphs? Is that the right word? 
Not sure. Again. Yeah. I think everybody knows what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. The yeah. Egyptian stick figures. Yeah. There's hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphics? Everybody well, knows what we're talking wall. about. Yeah. Take, yeah, be gentle on us. <laughs> yeah. The Egyptian stick figures, they've translated almost all of them, but there's a few that, that they just haven't. And he sent me a picture of one of these, and it looks like a submarine and a helicopter, like to anybody. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, what do you think? You know, he's yeah. asking the tour guide, and they're like, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But it sure looks like what a helicopter. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love that sense of like, uh, you know, certain cultures or, or languages have words that mean just what it is. There's no yeah. like translation. Right. I was with this, uh, Ojibwe guy in Minnesota when I was a kid and I was like, what does this word mean about what we're doing? He's like, it means what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. No direct translation, right? The first language, sec second language that I, that I learned was Norwegian, mm -hmm. right? It's been a year in Norway. And it was fascinating to me how much that made me consider the English language. Sure. Because you have to start out by learning what words you can replace. Like right. I'm taking this English word and I need to know the Norwegian word for that. And then pretty soon you get to the point where you have enough Norwegian words that you can string together these <laughs> really creative sentences that don't make, they're not right, but they get your point across. Yeah. And you can understand everything. You can kind of get your point across. And then you get to the point where you can just talk. You you think in that language. You dream in that language. And the syntax, the order of the words, is different in every language across yeah. the board. There are some interesting gaps that we have English words for that the Norwegians don't have and vice versa. And I find that fascinating that, that these cultures evolved and developed languages over thousands and thousands of years and never came up with a need for some of these words. Hmm. And one of the really interesting ones to me in Norway is uh, sorry. Hmm. They don't have a word for sorry. Interesting. So what, is there like a replacement for the term of sorts? You know, like so I've done bad or... <laughs> you could say like, it's like sole, which is like um, so so sad. Yeah. Um or you could say beklager, and that is, that's something that, like, you came in here and you're like, dude, I just ran over my dog on the way to my grandma's funeral. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, beklager. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, the scalability of sorry sure. is just not there. Right? But if you just, like, bump into somebody on the street, you just keep walking. Because <laughs> yeah. there's not a, <laughs> not a word for it. See, that's different from where I grew up. You'd be like, oh, oh, sorry. sorry yeah, sorry. right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically Canadian. <laughs> yeah, basically. Pretty close. Oh, language is funny. And then we try to translate our language um, and our emotions into animals' languages and hunting all the time. Oh, yeah. And it's it's one of the silliest things, I think, that, that really skilled callers try to explain to people who are learning. They're like, just add emotion. Yeah. Like, what? All right. I'm not even super good at my own emotions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do I speak elk with emotion? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that's what you have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you're just coming off of a goose yeah. hunt, and you're you're an excellent goose caller. Thanks, man. How how do you feel like there's a better way to describe that? Like how to learn yeah. an animal's language? Honestly, I think it comes down to just listening to them when you're not hunting them. Because right, like we all, there's a sense of like 
from the time you start goose hunting to the time you shoot a goose that your brain shuts off if you're good at what you're doing, right? You're mm-hmm. just, you're sort of cadencing with these birds. But if you, if you sit and listen and, and watch birds act and see how they communicate with each other, it's just like people, you know, like if you, if you go into a situation and you see a certain group of people interacting some way, your best bet to go interact with them is to do it how they do it. Right. And we had a camera, a couple camera guys with us this week and they'd never been goose hunting. And I was throwing comeback calls out at this, this group of geese. And he's like, sounds like you're saying come back. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty synonymous actually with what you would expect your brain to tell your, or, or your emotion to tell your brain of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, it's pretty similar. And I think that that similarity stems from a similarity that, that we have, right, with with each other, with other species, and we think that we're more different than what we are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not fair to anthropomorphize an animal, to treat yeah. it like a human, because it's not. You need to treat it like what it is. But there are some similarities in the way we experience and express emotion that can translate to how you use a cow call right. or duck or goose call. Presumably with turkeys, I'm not great at yeah. turkey calling, but yeah, and I would say too, you know, the people say like, "Oh, those geese are excited," right? But we don't know that they're excited. We can assume maybe they are excited to, sure. or they're. What I learned this year a lot is like I was always thinking that I was calling geese to me, right? But what I'm saying on the on the ground is like this is mine. That's what we we assume to be right. the case that we're saying this is my feed. Go away. Yeah. And then the goose in there is like, no, brother, I'm going to come down there and you know, get a part of that. Interesting. And that was just a guy I was hunting with that explained it to me that way. And you know, you, the more and more you do these things or pursue these critters that are vocal, mm-hmm. you tend to like put your own spin on it. Yep. And it's all assumption. Right. right? And it it probably worked one time. Yep. And then it worked a second time, and yep. suddenly you have yourself a pattern, right? We raised those uh, those two geese here. Yeah. So sourdough, right? Different um, goose. Different goose. These these yeah. are two Canada geese. Okay. Um, so I was walking the river, and Colonel Mustard, my dog, ran through a goose nest, and he ran the goose off of it. And there was two eggs in there, and we waited a whole day, and the goose didn't come back. And I was like, man, that sucks. Yeah. My first mistake was telling my mom about it, right? <laughs> so like, oh. she stomped down there, got the eggs. We've got an incubator right there behind yeah. you, actually. Yep. And we just, we didn't know how far along they were or anything. Sure. We just turned the incubator on and kept it at the right temperature and humidity. And a few weeks go by, and then <laughs> uh, we've got a couple <laughs> gooses that grow up on the ranch. And they would follow her around, and they would kind of, bark at cars with the dogs they didn't <laughs> yeah. really know what their place was they'd follow yeah. her when she was mowing the lawn they'd, they'd try and follow her down the highway <laughs> it was crazy you know yeah, your own how, version of flyway home here yeah, yeah how they imprinted on her but they also didn't leave they didn't leave the first year they spent the whole winter here we're expecting mm-hmm. them to leave uh they got pretty bold they started getting pretty aggressive mm-hmm. Pretty sure one got smoked by an eagle. Um, I don't know what happened with the I other, mean, but I was out here fishing one day and saw him whack. Uh, the seagull came and took a swipe at it and missed, but I think that's what eventually ended up happening. The reason I'm talking about all this is I got to learn a lot about goose vocalizations mm-hmm. from those birds. And a lot of sort of the finishing sounds that I would make, like the low growly mm-hmm. sounds that, that I would make to try and finish geese, that was their biggest threatening noise that they could make. Right. Um, they wanted you gone. Yeah. 
And if you think about a goose surviving, it's not necessarily to its benefit to have to share its resource with a bunch of other geese. Right. Yeah. And you, that could be said, especially when you get into like the kind of country that we live in, right? Where it's, it's not like we have grain fields for miles, right? We probably have one, right? right? And there's thousands of birds coming yeah. through it every day. Yeah. What's interesting too is like, as we've been urbanizing our world, geese patterns specifically in the Midwest have changed significantly with, yeah. the, you know, the advent of modern golf courses and they've got banded birds that never leave. Right. Cause why would you open water, food and place to be safe? Sure. I mean, you're, you're migrating essentially to it's imprinted on you to do that thing, but it takes one generation to be like, it's pretty nice here. Yeah. <laughs> probably. I'll just stay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what really amazes me about mountain goats. I think when people talk about mountain goats, they talk about how agile they are on steep ground. Sure. And then if you get into it a little bit more, it's like, oh man, they're mostly living on lichen that they're scraping off rocks with their teeth. And then if you get it into it even more, it's like, oh wait, they winter up there too. Yeah. They spend their whole winter up on that rock face. Yeah. In the snow, in the ice. It is unbelievably hostile up there. Yeah. That's the most impressive thing about them. If I was a mountain goat, I would live at the golf course. Yeah. Right. You know? But they just don't do it. They stay up yeah. there. It's remarkable. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is like hereditary in their, um, essentially in their DNA to just live where they live or if it's, you know, that they're actually comfy, you yeah. know? It'd be interesting. I don't know. I mean, they're they're an animal built for it. Certainly. Yeah. They're not native here. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. Like here, here? Here, here. Interesting. They were brought here. But it's it's interesting where where you see like the historic distribution maps, what they consider to be native mountain goat habitat mm-hmm. and what's introduced. But well, certainly like the big call going on in, in the Tetons and in that country, right? I mean. Yeah. And in um, the Olympic National Park. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like they were in the Tetons. Like, I don't, I mean, I, when you look there and you're like, there's goats there, like that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe some of this country out here where you sort of have rolly mule deer country, that's not necessarily super steep, but you know, they're living on grassy slopes. You're like, okay, I can see why that's not, that's not picturesque goat country for what what you and I think about. But well, the thing with, with the Eagle Caps is it's an Island, right? It's not a contiguous mountain range, but the Tetons are, they're connected with Rockies. Yeah. I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that mountain goats were not, not ever native there. They have an interesting history coming. We, th- we think they came from the Himalayas. That's awesome. But there's no fossil record. Hmm. But goats don't fossilize well, just in the nature of where they live. Yeah. And, of course, as you know, I'm big on uh, reintroducing the, the North American ibex. I know. Yeah. And people will argue that there's no fossil record for for ibex here so that they must not have existed but we know that mountain goats existed here and there's no fossil record indicating how how they got here we just make some assumptions about it yeah but those petroglyphs um in the columbia yep now we're on it um (laughs) those look like ibex they do to me too yeah they do and and we've been on even in the middle fork country yeah you know and some of those uh petroglyphs that you see rolling down that river that doesn't look like a bighorn sheep to me at times yeah Somet- i mean some sometimes do. it does yeah some yeah. do for sure but then there's others and you're like that horn goes all the way to its butt yeah i mean 
show me a sheep that's got horns that goes to it. I don't know. Yeah. But it's interesting because that country relative to the rest of the world is sort of isolated. It is. So where do they go? What do they do? But we think, I think that, you know, the, the first people that came through Beringia ended up in the salmon Mm -hmm. because that, that site, that archaeological site at Graves Creek on the salmon. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. you have you stopped I've there? I've seen there. Yeah, I've been there. Amazing, right? Yeah. So Graves Creek, for those who don't know, is a creek that comes into the, the lower main of the salmon, and um, it's a place that whitewater rafters have have camped recently. But they've started this archaeological site, and they found camps deeper and deeper into the soil, and they're at like fourteen thousand years deep now. Yeah, and I remember taking some clients through there and we hiked up there. And I think at that time they were like 11,000 years deep and they just unearthed um, several Wolverine jawbones, oh, man. which is trophy hunting. Yeah. Cause you're not like, that is not a sustainable food source. If you're like, okay, I could kill an elk or a deer or a Wolverine. Yeah. It had to have been like, and I'm making some assumptions here, but it had to have been focused around the idea that it had some sort of essence of, power or whatever it would be to kill a wolverine right and they're taking back something that doesn't get turned into some other tool right it it stays as a jawbone and ends up around the campfire Mm -hmm. somewhere that that feels to me like it was trophy hunting yeah and we really want to there there's there's subgroups within hunting that that want to really bastardize trophy hunting because it's not palatable for the general public. Right. And while it isn't something that's important to me personally, I still feel the call to bring up that this isn't brand new. This yeah. is something that is, is is potentially as old as the existence of Homo sapiens on this continent. Yeah. 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 There's a certain sense, I, I think, for a non-hunter or for somebody who's not integrated in this lifestyle where it could it could assume they could assume that it's somehow like a barbaric thing or whatever, but um, there's a great sense of pride in that too. Yeah. Like I have accomplished this because I put in the work to do it and this is the reward. Yeah. And then here's this, here's this homage to, to that animal and to the experience. um, This, this physical thing that can remind me of all of that. Yeah. The first person that, you know, somebody walks in my house and they see a big bull elk on the wall there's a story there. There's yeah. an entry for them to talk about what it meant to me. And then, you know, you're off from there. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. That's cool. Well, we wanted to talk about the hunting industry a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think I remember in 2015 was the first time I ever heard that as a term. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has to do a little bit with like what my profession was becoming at the time and, and certain things. I don't know how long that term's been getting kicked around, but yeah. you hear it a lot now. You do, yeah. The history of what we consider now the hunting industry is has been around since, you know, folks were making rifles. And I, I think that I would assume that that would be a, a hunting industry of, of days gone by. But Or really, a lot longer. I'm, I yeah, imagine probably. there was one guy in the tribe that was super good at making – arrowheads yeah and you went to him and you're like hey man i'm pretty good at picking morel mushrooms yeah. and here's some of these and can yeah. i have some arrowheads yeah like that's hunting industry too the first transaction yeah you know and, and i think that it's just been called a lot of different things throughout time yeah but there is a sense of like if you're in or out right like you're either a consumer of the hunting industry or you're in the hunting industry mm. um 
and I've floated between both. So have you. Sure. And I've always felt like I've always been a part of it, whether it's on the guide side or in the business side. But I think to understand it, you have to go back to look at like the history of what we call now the influencer, right? Yeah. Because the influencer is not new to the American economy or the global economy whatsoever, no. right? It is a new household term. Right. So at first, right, and talking about the hunting industry in general, you had traditional sponsorships, right? You either had some sort of media or a magazine and you, you had sponsors, right? Much like a snowboarder has a sponsor of spy goggles or yeah. whatever. And then the term shifted after, after television started to sort of essentially, for lack of a better term, bleed out. I mean, it's always hunting television is always going to be around, but I think it's efficiency as a marketing tool is certainly different now with the advent of digital media. Um, it went from a sponsored individual to a brand ambassador, right? And then from there, we've sort of ripped off or, or stole the, this term influencer from, I mean, it's been going on in, let's call it like makeup industry sure. or NASCAR, whatever it is, right? It's essentially the schlepping of goods through your, your channel, so to yep. speak. So I, I think it's important to understand that this has been around a while and it's often spoken about in such a negative light. Um, what we're trying to do at, at my job at First Light is to, is to bring in people that are an expert in what they do. Like that's my baseline for even answering the phone, right? Is are you really good at what you say you're good at? You know, and then we build from there. It's got nothing to do with, you know, at first, like how much gear can you sell or what do you know about product design or whatever it is? It's a, it's, are you an expert in what we're looking to try to satisfy together? Yeah. And we saw that in the Marine Corps too. And we called them SMEs. SMEs. Subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. And that was a big deal. If somebody called you a subject matter expert, that was a big deal because that meant that I could take out the book that weighs 12 pounds on the M1A1 Abrams main battle tank and I could grab Jack Ramson and say, hey, what's the torque spec on this bolt on this part of the tank? And he could tell me. He could mm -hmm. tell me everything that was in that book. He was the subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. Now, was there more than one? I'm always curious about that. Or was there like the guy? So it really depends. Um, and the tank is a isn't a single thing. It's a community. It's an, it's an organism. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, within that you've got an optic system, you've got, um, a pretty elaborate radio system. You've mm -hmm. got, you know, a bunch of things. So there, there will be a subject matter expert on radios. Yep. There'll be a subject matter expert on thermals. There'll be a subject matter expert on the M2 machine gun, right? whatever. But if, if somebody reached the level of master gunner, then they're considered the subject matter expert on the vehicle and all of its components. Gotcha. Although you would have somebody that was specific to yeah. one of those components as well. Certainly an org structure, yep. right? Like a structural organization yep. based, based on the best in the world that know how to do it. And an expert is kind of a nebulous term because it doesn't mean that you can't learn more. Yeah. In fact, um, I would argue that most ex experts wouldn't, one, call themselves an expert and two, are never done learning, right? Yeah. They're always searching for the, the more intel. Absolutely, yeah. as they should be. Mm -hmm. But there is a stage where if if you compare your skill and knowledge to everyone else's who's interested in the field, that you're at a level that is considered to be expert. Right. I think a good example of that is we work with a guy named Levi Morgan who's regarded as one of the best professional archers to ever walk the earth and also a I would consider him 
uh, a shmi, if you will, yeah. on uh, on whitetail hunting. Right? Yeah. He's hunted deer in a lot of different places, public, private, you name it. And he texted me in November, no, excuse me, in October, pre-rut, out of the blue at like two in the morning, I know where he's bedded, right? Mm-hmm. So this guy is like thinking about learning about this deer he's chasing. At two in the morning, he wakes up and his first response is like, he wants to text me because he's like stoked. Yeah. That to me is just an example of like the guys that we're working with never stop like in this pursuit. It's almost a sickness, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's passion, right? Yeah. And it, the, the term obsession gets thrown, thrown around. Um, and maybe that's right. I think that, that there's probably a, a little bit of razzle dazzle when people say obsessed. Um, cause that's more of a clinical term if we're being honest, mm-hmm. but, but passionate that that's more the word. I think you're right because when you're talking about somebody that's passionate in, for this instance, the, the whitetail space, you know, it takes a lot of gumption to want to, um, chase whitetails in places that are, um, more difficult than others. You know, if he's, he's a big enough name and has enough clout to, he could go to Kansas for four weeks a year, but yet he's in Mississippi and he's in Alabama and going to Texas and trying to hunt whitetails in Maine. And it's just like, it's a, a, a generational thing within his family too, to just always be better, you know, like to always push the needle and and continue to sort of take over that space. How tall is that dude? He's tall. He seems tall. Yeah. He's got a hell of a draw length. Six, four tight jawline. Just like he's made for, made for TV, right? Yeah. Hell of a draw length. I'm jealous of that. 32, almost 32 inches, I think. Yeah. See, that's not fair. (laughs) No, that's not fair. He's pushing like 600 grain arrows with like a bow that shoots maybe 65 pounds or 70 pounds, you know? (laughs) I'm glad he's shooting a real arrow. That oh, yeah. Makes me shoots happy. a heavy arrow. Seeing a lot more of that. I think that's, you know, we talk about it. You want to talk weekly. about influence? Yeah. Been working on this for a while now. Yeah, and I think the, the nice part about how you've done it is it's been proof in the pudding, right? Yeah. For lack of a better explanation. It's not you should shoot a heavy arrow because James Nash shoots a heavy arrow. It's because it's effective in plan B killing more elk. Yeah. Right? We talked about this when we were gotten together all the time, right? Like, you just have these instances where... Nobody thinks that they're going to hit a shoulder blade or a rib or a hind quarter for, you know. Yeah. But if you shoot a heavy arrow with a big-ass broadhead that's flat and plows through bone. It's going to be more lethal than a light arrow that hits in the same spot. You're just getting more better. Yeah. (laughs) You know. You're improving your odds. Yeah. And I think that's really what it came down to is people were like, this isn't like a fad. Sure, you can be effective with a 300-grain arrow with a mechanical broadhead on the front. Plenty of guys do it, right? But what happens when plan B happens? And I think that mentality is people in their brain were like, well, that happens to me. Yeah. It happens to me a lot. And I'd like to put more critters on the ground. Yeah. And unfortunately, at least in this instance, people tend not to drink drink this Kool-Aid until the bad thing happens to them. Like, right. They can get away with it for a while. And then, you know, they hit the wrong rib and suddenly they lose an animal or they don't find it until the next day and the coyotes ate it or whatever. Right. And they're like, I don't, that's horrible. That was a horrible feeling. That was a bad experience. doesn't feel ethical. How can I avoid that? And they start doing a little bit of research mm-hmm. and then they come up with a solution and then, you know, there's, there's information out there. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing we've worked on as a collective too, is understanding that every stretch, like, every piece of information we put out has to be a hundred percent accurate and a hundred percent for the consumer of our products. Mm. So we don't do stuff like 
hey, here I am in the Chugach, and this is what I'm wearing. Like, that's not our MO. I mean, there's a little bit of that out there, but really we're looking at, like, key situational stuff. Like, it's super wet. This is what I need to, to stay dry, right? Yeah. Simplifying it to the point of, like, people aren't thinking, the consumer isn't thinking about, like, okay, I have $320 to spend. What what do I need? They're thinking about, this is what happens when I'm out there. How Who's going to solve that problem for me? Yeah. And that comes down to the information that all of our pro team guys put out there. Um, it's impactful information. And we're trying to help folks, you know? Yeah. I'll tell you, if you want to become an expert, the road is through personal struggle and experience. Absolutely. So Sean and I went out and uh, we, we took the snowmobiles out into the backcountry and set up a tent set up a, a, a teepee tent and went out and did a coyote hunt, came back, ate our freeze dried, went to bed. I'd never set up a tent on feet of snow before. Right. That was a new thing for me. So I didn't really know how to do it. I had some ideas in my mind, um, did a little bit of research, didn't call anybody, but I was like, I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. And I snowmobiled over the spot a bunch of times. Yeah, and then I got out my snowshoes and I packed it down and I cut a bunch of poles because I knew the stakes that I used usually put in yeah, dirt right. won't work. And, you know, we, we got it all sealed off. I shoveled snow all around the tent. Um, everything's looking good. Got the tent warm. Um, like, I'm feeling good about mm-hmm. this. I feel like this is going to be a good night of sleep. And the condensation was brutal. Yeah, too much humidity probably. Maybe. Yeah, you know, I sealed it tight, you know. I didn't have any air coming in from yeah. the bottom, so there's no air circulating. I had the chimney hole still open, but it just wasn't enough yeah. to actually breathe that and air And you were stoveless. It. I brought, uh, like, a Mr. Buddy. Yeah, sure. Um, so I just used that to get the tent warm when we got yeah. into bed and the tent warm when we get out. Right. And I do the same thing with a titanium stove. Yeah, for sure. I think keeping it warm all night long is just an exercise. Really. Yeah, it is. It's a morale boost at times Yeah, if you're stuck in the tent or whatever. but Got nothing better to do than yeah. put, put twigs <laughs> in a titanium <laughs> yeah. can. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I came closer to knowing what I'm doing by going out and having the experience and doing it. And I could have read a dozen articles. I could have talked to a bunch of people, but everything still would have been theoretical for my application until I'd gone out and done it. Right. Yeah. They say like one of the things I try to live by is the best perspective is only built by on the ground experience. Yep. No, for what are you talking politics or hunting or whatever? Right. I I think you have to, you have to live it to understand how you're going to get better at it or to just see a perspective from a different way. And, you know, backcountry camping in the winter is no joke you know there's the consequences higher immediately sure from the moment you leave the warm truck um so it's interesting to see like so what did you learn that's the question um i learned that i've got more research to do Mm -hmm. i've got to figure out this condensation thing because there's parts of the tent that would stay warm and those would be drops of water that hit you in the face and there's parts of it where it would freeze. And then when the wind would make the tent oh, yeah. billow, it would knock that ice off. And then you'd have frost hitting <laughs> you in the face. Yeah. So I, I just need to like call around and ask people, hey, have you done this? Did you find a solution for it? I've got another teepee um, from Kafaro that I've got the liner in. And it's great for condensation. But that thing has like 25 stake pockets. Yeah, And the stake pockets are really little. So I was going to have to 
take some cordage and make loops for every single one of them, go out and cut 25 stakes yeah. instead of 14 stakes. And I was like, this is just too much. Yeah. And then it's a lot bigger space for body heat to actually heat up. Right. Hindsight, that would have been the move, but it would have taken me another hour at yeah. least. Yeah. Yeah. And time is money, you know? Yeah. Time <laughs> is the most valuable of all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So trying to, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to make this transition from being a hunter into, um, getting some sponsorships, Mm -hmm. um, and trying to become professional at what they do. So let's say someone is a sure enough expert. Mm -hmm. They're a subject matter expert and they call you or call anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, how should that conversation go and tell me a little bit more about what you're actually looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause we get thousands of emails a day. And I always tell people like, if, unless somebody's coming through a connection that I already trust, it's like, we'll respond to everybody. We, we take great pride in being able to communicate with anybody that wants to chat about this life in this world. Um, when it comes to being a part of this, this thing, but I, I really think that experts tend to isolate themselves a little bit because they're focused. Right. But then they're generally looking to other experts for help. So, or for learning or for camaraderie or whatever it is. So we get a lot of recommendations through folks that I already trust and already have built a relationship with. That's the first thing. If you, if you feel as though you're really good at something, generally you're probably going to know somebody who also knows the person in charge of this programming. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way to meet anybody. You know, all my jobs, all my relationships have come through a mutual connection of trust somehow. Yeah. Um, so I think rather than like a cold call, you know, to a company or to a organization you want to be a part of. Cause this is not just talking about like a paid ambassadorship with a clothing company. This could be trying to get some uh, legislation passed and you're good at that with Wyoming wildlife or, you know, trying to save bear hunting in California and you have a good perspective on it. Knowing the right way in which to approach even the initial conversation is it's going to save you hours on the back end you know, having to keep emailing, having to submit photographs, having to yeah. prove yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the, the first message of advice really is to, is to lock into mutual relationships that you trust and that the person you're trying to work with trusts. Yeah. So maybe you need to think about building your network a little bit more if yeah. you don't have one. Yeah. And look, I'm not saying that you got to go to every 3d shoot in the world and, you know, tell people how great you are, but there is some sense of like, if you're doing things really well, somebody is either going to find you or somebody that has a mutual respect for you is going to recommend you that you do something sure. for a company. And, you know, all of the all of the, the biggest deals that I've gotten within the hunting industry have been people who called me, mm-hmm. not me reaching out. Yep. And it's weird for me because I tend to be, I, I tend to be seeking opportunity all the time. Sure. Um, but I also think that that, that that attitude of seeking opportunity and seeking experience has gotten me to a position where, um, where people are calling me mm-hmm. now, which isn't something that I would have ever expected. And it, it's yeah. still strange to me when it happens. Very yeah. But I think you've established yourself in, in this industry to have knowledge that people want to understand. They want to like utilize your skill set to build a better rifle or, understand, you know, um, how to alcohol better, whatever it is, there's a reputation there. And I think that that's the purest form of, of, uh, of what we're after with this pro team program is like, who are those people? Right. And what have they done outside of the check outside of, 
you know, the notoriety of being, uh, you know, quote influencer and, and looking at what they're actually good at because they, they're passionate about it. You know, yeah. they're going to do it regardless. The other day we talked a little bit about how the, uh, the strategy of just finding in- interesting personalities and the marketing of personalities, how that's starting to shift. Yeah, certainly. So for a long time you had traditional media that was a sponsored athlete, like a pro fisherman or somebody that was built through the, through the ranks, right? They won some championships. They got a sponsorship. The sponsorship built them up. I think there's going to be a super big shift in, in that world because, um, a lot of the people that have founded these companies and started these companies, um, and work continuously on those products are really knowledgeable people. They wouldn't be in business if they weren't. Right. And I think you sort of just like cut out the middleman essentially for some of these smaller companies that really have a super strong employee base that Mm -hmm. really get after it. That to me is the shift, right? Between, um, you know, a big contract guy and a guy that is building backpacks or, uh, build Merino wool products or whatever it is. They really understand it. Um, so you basically are saying, I'm a consumer. Who am I going to listen to? Right. Somebody that builds the stuff or somebody that, you know, is, is repping the stuff. So that's why like we've tried really hard at our company at first light to essentially bring in experts that are developing gear with us. You know, we sit in a room with these guys and, and girls and say, okay, what do we need to build? Um, we have a good expertise on materials and factories and how to build it. Yeah. But like, we ask the question of what do you need? Why do you use it? What places are you using it? Does the zipper work? You know, finite detail stuff. Freaking zippers. Oh man. I wish they were, they didn't exist. You know, like yeah. if, if zippers didn't exist, it'd be a great thing. Um, but they do cause they have to. <laughs> yeah. We don't have a, we don't have a replacement for the zipper yet. No. If somebody can come up with one, you should do that. Yeah. Because you're gonna call make, me. You're going to make a lot of money. But yeah. the, the mileage of zippers that gets produced every year is yeah. incredible. It's like YKK, right? That yeah. makes like the zipper heads even. I don't even think they do the tracking. I think it's just the zipper heads. Wow. Phenomenal. But, you know, that's what I'm saying is like the, the insight that I have is like instead of saying, okay, this guy's got a, a kajillion Instagram followers his conversion to our site is going to be phenomenal. Maybe so, right? Yeah. But what I want is a guy that's got, you know, a hundred that spends a hundred days in the woods and, you know, works his ass off at a day job, understands how gear works and comes to us with ideas, right? Yeah. That to me is way more valuable. Now we also need guys to help us promote what we're doing, right? At a large scale. But we have a nice balance of folks that are big time names that also are experts that, travel all over the country and the world and hunt we also have guys that you know are plumbers and electricians and and folks that work really hard every day or guide every fall that have really good insight on how we build products better yeah 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 and it's it's important to have all of that and it's a it's a community and that's Mm -hmm. that's your role yeah is managing that community yep it's a neat thing yeah okay so so somebody gets uh you know they've got an in with with a brand and and they're an expert they're established uh, how should the conversation go it's a great question we get a lot of bad communications that way yeah. usually it starts with hey i'm about to blow up on youtube <laughs> mostly okay which is like the worst kind of way yeah. to entry in because you're not showing a sense of humility or anything like that um and really it doesn't matter to me, if you're going to be a YouTube celebrity, that's not what we're interested in. Right. 
So I think the conversation needs to go start with first research as to there's, it's a pretty easy, um, people have an easy ability to look at what first light is doing or whatever any company is doing and gain some insight into what direction are they going? What is their, what does their social feed say about where they're going? What does their website say? What does their growth say? Um, and really come to the table with a plan, right? To, to come in and say, this is what I can accomplish for you guys, rather than this is what I would like you to pay me, right. or this is what I need from you in gear or, yeah. or whatever. Bringing some sort of insight in to say like, hey, I noticed this. Yep. I'm really good at this. And I, I encourage people often to be um, strong in their confidence, but don't ever tip to cocky. Right. Like I need guys and women. That's a tricky thing. It's so hard, but there's people that are really good at it. We work with a lot of them that are able to explain why they're good at something, but also be open to criticism. Right. I mean, you got to be in a good mental place and a good personal place to be that kind of person. Yeah. Um, And we try to work with a lot of them. So I think bringing a plan together of, of, of some sort of research and insight into what, where we're going as a brand, what can I offer you? This is what um, I think I'm really good at. This is what the type of people I can speak to. And those are the gaps that I can fill in. Um, understanding where that void is for a brand is really important. And of course, like there's, there's going to be folks that are, that are big names that I already know what that information is, but they still, those people still come to the table with that same argument every day or the mm-hmm. same sort of uh, intro into that conversation. Right. Yeah. 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 Humility. Oh, I'll, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up while uh, while you tell me about what you're looking forward to doing this year. Yeah. So I've got a couple good hunts. Brad Brooks was just on here. And Brad and I are going to Hawaii. It's the first time I've hunted in Hawaii in May. Oh, you um, are? Yeah. So we're going to go cool. hunt axe steer and maybe some goats and do some fishing, some spear fishing. I think anytime I'm outside of my element, I just feel like I learn so much, especially with a guy like Brad, who's just a sponge. Yeah. Like that guy, not a lot of people know, but he's like a world-class rock climber, right? Which he also hunts a ton. So it's just like one of these things where he's a good dude to be around that way. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've got a cool elk hunt with the top priority guys out of Idaho in the fall. Um, Rifle hunt, never killed an elk with a rifle. Um, So I'm excited to do that. I've always just uh, been an archery guy so far. And then, yeah, we're we're getting into waterfowl too. So we'll have a lot of cool stuff coming uh, next fall. We're kind of wrapping up this waterfowl season now so after that i think we'll we'll probably finish out the year waterfowl hunting across the country which is always fun i'm really excited to go down to the south and kind of learn about that cultural the cultural sense of duck hunting uh in a way that's relatable to you know the midwest in a way it's a lot there's a lot of tradition steeped in duck hunting yeah yeah. steeped steeped not seeped i was trying to find this freaking quote that i read like 22 years ago that i think was mark twain but i'll try to paraphrase yeah um, I think that he basically said that there are brands of humility that are themselves bragging. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's different from humble bragging, which is a new kind of kitschy term, Yeah. but you can, you can be so humble, so genuinely humble that, that it is a type of, of bragging. And if you can walk that line fine enough, then, then you found where you can be confident and humble all at the same time without yeah. getting cocky that's tough man super tough i catch myself all the time because you know i i've had a lot of good experiences you know in this in this role and i've got to do a lot of cool things so then you tend to say like well i've done that so i must know more about it than someone else 
So my goal for 22 is just to listen really in a better way. Hmm. Um, because obviously the best experts out there probably are probably don't say a whole lot, you know, and I'm a talkative guy. So I like get things out through communicating with people. But so I'm going to try really hard to just be a better listener, you know, and kind of understand you can soak up a lot of information if you just listen instead of try to add your own piece to it. Listening's hard. Very hard. Most people just listen because they know it's their turn to talk next. Yeah, that's a good point. So they're like, they're already got in their head what they're going to say. <laughs> you know why someone's mouth is moving. Exactly. That's why if you stray with the direction of what you're talking about while it's still your turn, then somebody will be like, I forgot what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. They weren't listening to you. They're no. just thinking about what they're going to say next. Yeah. Listening is a really difficult thing. Yeah. And it, it has to occur pretty slowly. You can't yeah. have a rapid conversation and really listen to what the other person is going to say. Yeah. You know, we work with a couple of guys that I tend to almost struggle to talk to sometimes because the cadence of the conversation is there's big pauses, but I know what's happening is there's, they're, they're banking that information coming up with a response that's eloquent and then it comes right. Yeah. Versus just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Or whatever. Right. It's yeah. That's a, that's a tough one, man. I, I think there's a difference between listening and hearing too. I don't retain information uh, very well. I'm a fast reader, right? But I tend to go back and read again because I'm, suddenly I'm like thinking about something else while I'm reading, which is an interesting, like, interesting problem, right? And I, that that's that comes into conversation often, right? Where you're like, you have to digest everything to try to retain it all, right? And especially in hunting, man. You can do the same thing. Um, that you're talking about with reading in conversation with reading, you're going back and you're scanning it again to make sure that you got it right with conversation. You can say something like what I heard you say was, and then put it in your own words. And if it sounds to them, like you got it, then you're good to go and you can move on. But somebody will almost always be honest with you. If I say what I heard you say was this and, and I didn't get it right. You'd be like, well, no, what I'm trying to say is this. And now we're getting closer together. Yeah, absolutely. Because language is hard. Language is hard. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's an interesting point too. And I think the, the guys that we work with, I should say the men and women we work with, are really good at retaining information and then presenting information in a way that I've never... I've worked in a lot of different industries and jobs and stuff. I've never seen... Because I think all these folks are really passionate about what they do, they want to make sure that they're the right and correct thing is developed. Yeah. So they'll take as much time as it takes. They'll sit in a, in a meeting room for hours, not saying a word. And then all of a sudden this beautiful product is built off based off of listening to what a product designer is trying to accomplish, giving their two cents and suddenly you're there. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting ride for both of us, you know, for those that don't know, me and Kevin have been friends for close to a decade. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we met before before any of this really started. I was guiding a little bit of fly fishing in Whitewater. You were working at a local brew pub. Yeah. So our lives have, have changed a lot. And now we work for, for competing camouflage companies. Mm-hmm. And we work with other brands that, that work together. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's fun. And oh, yeah. I don't want people to get as spun out and, and as tribal as what they've been doing. I think that that some of some of the way that we've marketed has created real division um, with within the hunting community as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
and you, you think that because of the way a brand that you use their gear markets and like their moral or political stance is this that 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 lines up with your own so that now anybody that wears something else doesn't believe the same thing as you so now they're in a different tribe it really is working like that and i don't think it's healthy for any of us no it's certainly not healthy for the continuation of our pursuits right i mean you've seen it now with a lot of anti-hunting legislation getting on ballots and getting getting placed in sort of the dichotomy of of this world we're living in and that's what's interesting is you've got otherwise maybe competing entities coming after the same goal of saying like that's probably wrong we need to do something together yeah so there's a lot more conversation and, and collaboration across folks that otherwise would be trying to compete for a customer yeah and we've, what we forget man is the hunting space is not a big there's not a lot of dollars behind it right and in, in terms of like in industry comparison to jeans or whatever right, right. yeah I think between hunting product and gear uh, and travel, $39 billion, $40 billion yeah. a year in yeah. the U.S. Yeah, which, you know, it sounds like a giant number. It is a giant number. Yeah. But there's not a whole there, – there's people that are hunting, right? But there's a lot of people that – more people are, like, reading a newspaper or yeah. <laughs> whatever it may be. Yeah. Just because it's important to you doesn't mean that everybody's doing it. Yeah. That said – one of the most important things about hunting is that it ensures the future of the wildlife that we pursue. Absolutely. And that is something that affects everyone. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, um, a way in which that, that, that notion of, of protecting wild places and, and ensuring that they exist for multi-use industry is really important. You know, you look at forest management, bodes really well with hunting and so does watershed management. All these things are really important and there's a lot of good advocates for them out there. But the the other side of the coin too, is that we need to do a better job as an industry of, of bringing people into our mindset of thinking, right? Like saying, okay, you want to hunt? This is what's really important for you to be able to do that. Yeah. And in turn, you're going to have some pretty thoughtful people, I think, come into the space and, and try to make it better. And God bless these people who are new coming into it. Um, because I don't know if I could do it myself. Yeah. Um, the barriers to entry are massive, giant, massive, trying to understand these regulations, trying to learn how to apply for a hunt and what you're hunting for and what you need to get. And you're looking at at this myriad of of resources, many of which are complete crap because they're just trying to sell you something. Yeah, that's true. Every time I go to a new state this fall, I like scheduled a two hour earlier arrival than everybody else just to read the regulations. Yeah. And, and like, I have hunted States that are sort of synonymous to each other. There's a lot of nuances where, where you go, but I cannot imagine picking up a synopsis in the state of Oregon, for example, and reading it and being like, I'm ready to go hunting. You know, it stresses me out when I hunt another state. Yeah. Because it's like, do I have enough square inches of hunter orange on me at this time? How do I measure square inches on a vest? Does, yeah. Can somebody help it's me with some algebra? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. Um, no, it, it, it's really, really stressful. It's, it's worse than it needs to be. I was talking with Kyle Nye about this the other day, and he wants to see a, a Western state alliance mm. um, where there would be more consolidation of regulations between states so that it was easier to understand. Mm-hmm. 
so you could have an exchange program with other states. Interesting. So, so like college reciprocity. You know, right. So like college, there's the Western Undergraduate Exchange Scholarship. Means that I paid like, I can't remember. It was like 130% of the resident rate in Montana. And somebody from Montana could come to Oregon and get the same deal. Yep. So we paid a little bit more than in-state tuition, but both states got that benefit. Yeah. So what if there's this Western... Um, Western Hunting Alliance, and I can come and hunt in Idaho at close to resident rates. You can come and hunt in Oregon at close to resident rates. Neither state is out anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, they've both gained a little bit more than they would have. And now they've got the support to help each other when they get attacked by various groups that are interested in changing the way they do business. It's a lot harder to ban bear hunting in 10 states than it is five or yeah. one, you know? Right. So the yeah. Humane Society of the U.S. is a nationwide organization that can go and take on these states one at a time, mm-hmm. which is strategically the correct move for them to do. Right. And as soon as they can get one, then they can get a little bit of momentum right. to get another. But while we still stand divided, yeah. um, we're pretty vulnerable. Absolutely. You know, we, we've seen a lot of um, diverging policy too. And this is something I talk about with our pro team guys all the time because they they essentially hunt coast to coast, you know, basically all of North America and beyond. And what they've said and what, what I can recognize is that when you go, like they're invested in the, in the well-being of wildlife in Idaho. They're invested in the well-being of wildlife where they live. Um, new hunters coming in, which was interesting with the hunter report that Onyx put out, those people are interested in the same thing. Mm-hmm. So like if you could have advocates across, um, you know, multiple states saying, okay, this is how we do the things. This is how we protect what we're after. It's a much simpler process, you know, especially for somebody that's non-resident hunting somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Kyle Nye's a smart man. He is. Um, he, he can come up with big ideas <laughs> yeah. and th- this is a, great big idea and, and just imagine the the force multiplier of them being able to share their science that's that's another thing too because we've seen in like places like colorado they basically said as a state well we don't really care what biology says or ecology says yeah that to me is problematic yeah can you imagine problem. being like a phd large mammal biologist and suddenly you went to school for 15 years and somebody says that doesn't matter anymore well i was on the elk management objective mm. committee here and they started the meeting that the district biologist said, this is not about science. This is about social tolerance. Yeah. Which is a science of its own. Yeah. Touche. Don't, <laughs> don't try and act like it's not, yeah. but it is a much trickier one. Yeah, certainly. But my goodness, that, that was a wild meeting. I imagine. And what they ended up doing, this was so unscientific. The elk numbers were, were well above the management objective. And in order to get it, to get the elk numbers to meet the management objective, rather than reduce the elk herd, they changed the management objective. Mm-hmm. Moving the goalpost, baby. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. holy cow, I wish I could balance my checkbook yeah. like that. Wouldn't that be yeah. neat? <laughs> and 10 grand just became four. <laughs> Actually, I'm not in debt. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, man, that is something else. And I, man, I just like... I can't imagine that was like well received, but people probably just like everybody is managing for their own interests. Um, Kurt Melter, the director of ODFW, who's a, who's a good guy. He told me that in 
in fish and wildlife, everybody just wants their own, um, what did he say? Their own fair advantage. Yeah. Which is an interesting little. It's a hard one to unpack there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I, I worry, you know, as, as you probably do too, when, when I'm in this space, right, I worry about, are we, I should say, I often ask myself every day, are we doing the right thing by bringing people more, more people into this fold, right? And the answer always comes back to me of yes, like we need more people, but what's crucial is the way in which we explain how we do what we do, what is right and what is wrong. And a lot of times it can be pretty like pretty black and white in a lot of situations, but there's nuances across every state. And that's questions that our pro team guys ask all the time too. Like, what is the objective of what we're trying to accomplish? Which is a good question to ask, you know? A lot of what we're seeing, a lot of this noise that you're hearing goes right back to what we first started talking about with the geese. The sound that you were coming to that brought you into hunting, that makes you think that that it's a good thing, that's actually somebody telling you to stay away Mm -hmm. because they're trying to protect a resource for themselves that they enjoy and they don't want to share. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So we're, we're getting some of this wrong. I don't know. There's, there's not enough, there's not enough wildlife to go around. Right. Um, and there hasn't been for a long time and people forget that too. The reason that elk and deer and turkey numbers and most of our wildlife came close to extinction or extirpation uh, around 1900 was due to market hunting. And that was when we were trying to feed everybody with wildlife. Mm-hmm. And we had agriculture to to boost that as well. So even if you take it back to where we had way fewer people at the turn of the last century, we still didn't have enough wildlife to feed everybody. Right. So that's not the move. Like, I know Joe Rogan eats elk. Not everybody can eat elk, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But we do need people to buy these tags and buy these licenses so that states can run their agencies that manage fish and wildlife. We need people to buy guns and ammo and arrows and fish hooks because there's an excise tax that gets Mm -hmm. pulled off those by the federal government and gets kicked back down to states to match those license dollars that were sold. And that goes into funding research for usually wildlife that is not a big game animal. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to continue to understand these wildlife populations and the way they're moving around and the threats that face them and their habitats, because that's going to continue to change. Science has to maintain a presence and they have to take action based on what they learned. Mm -hmm. And it has to be funded by somebody. And the only people that are willing to do it are the people that get something back from it. Yeah. And that something back is the legal ability to hunt and fish and shoot guns. Yeah. And this is the first time I think in a lot of generations in which, you know, conservation efforts have been around for a long time. But I think this is the first generation that really maybe understands that it's a real threat now. Like not, not the, not the wildlife being a threat, but the, our ability to participate in it. I was back with my folks in Minnesota over the holiday and I asked my grandpa, do you ever think hunting won't be a thing? And he said, what do you mean? And then I asked my dad the same question. He said, yeah, I could see it. And then you ask somebody that's my age and they're saying, yeah, we got to fight for that stuff. Yeah. So just that generational gap of like, my grandpa didn't even 
know what the hell I was talking about. He's like, well, we've always hunted. We'll always be able to hunt. That's the way it is. My well, dad gets it. I think future generations are just going to hunt through virtual reality. Yeah, I know. We've talked about this too. I mean, it's right there. Yeah, we're close. We're yeah. not far off. Yeah. Um, but if that's the case, unless, you know, Meta is is siphoning off Bitcoin to then fund wildlife research, then wildlife will, will go away. Yeah. They, they, they cannot exist without help. I just don't understand. I don't think people understand how fragile it is. You yeah. know, like they think everything in our system gets funded through taxation or whatever you want to say that that's always going to be there. Right. But wildlife agencies, and that's why there's so many organizations coming up the ladder, so to speak, to, to really help protect this pursuit because they have to, they have to carry the slack of what agencies just aren't funded to do anymore. Right. Um, at least in my interpretation. And and I do think that my line of work, I, I like to think that the people we select to help, fly that flag are good folks that care about the ability to hunt very simply right it's a simple message but they're going to do everything in their power to be able to make sure that we can do what we love to do every day yeah yeah that's important yeah i saw there was a bill nationwide bill to ban trapping Mm -hmm. um sportsman's alliance posted about it today that includes mice, folks. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and and that people think about it like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to. Of course, they don't understand trapping at all, but uh, they're like, "Well, I don't, I don't like the idea of uh, of a coyote getting caught in a trap." And well, what about mice? Like, if you have mice in your pantry, are you going to trap those? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, that's something that affects you. That coyote affects somebody else. Yep. When Washington banned trapping, do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, you couldn't even catch uh, a cow in a squeeze chute because that right. was a steel device that restrained an animal. No kidding. I did not know that. That is bonkers. Yeah. It's a, okay. So now we have all of these vaccinations for cattle that re- are required for the federal government. Yeah. And now you no longer have the ability to restrain a cow. Yeah. That's bonkers. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Better get some good ass cowboys. Think it through. Yeah, yeah. Think it through. Like yeah. this affects you. It may seem yeah. like it doesn't, but certainly. it does. Yeah, certainly. Trapping to me is such an interesting thing because one, I enjoy it, right? I've done a little bit. By no means have a clue what I'm doing. But the historic preservation of such a um traditional skill set is dying, man. Like yeah. talking to like listening to Greg and talking to him about Sure. You can't be a cowboy at 30. You sure as hell can't be a, you can't even be a trapper at a, like a professional trapper if you don't do it from birth. Right. Yeah. So there's not that many left of them. Right. And it's no, like, and, and guys are afraid to talk about it. And, oh yeah. and I am too, honestly, because that's the approach that most trappers take is like, just go silently into the night. But I, I want to keep the lights on. Yeah. Um, and if, if we don't talk about it, if we don't talk about what trapping is and what it means and the realities of it and let people understand that this isn't, this isn't a cruel thing. Like people think that if an animal steps on a trap that it like cuts off their circulation and breaks their bones. Like I catch myself in my traps every time I go trapping, like still got all my fingers. It's not that big of a deal. It's like a spring powered handcuff, but people just don't understand that. And if, if they're willing to talk about it, it's like, okay, I'm not mad about a spring powered handcuff. Um, that doesn't seem that bad to me. Right. But 
I, I just don't think that not talking is the move and maybe I'm wrong. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm making it worse by talking about it. Maybe, but I still, you know, one of the objectives we have for our pro team guys, a certain selection of them, they're, they've been tasked with taking someone who's never hunted or could be as far on the, to the left of it, of being against hunting inviting them to go with them because mm-hmm. I trust their ability to make it a good experience. Sure. So it's a one by one type deal. Maybe yeah. that person goes, tells their friends, yeah. Hey, I had a good time. This wasn't a bad deal. Now I know where my food comes from. One of the camera guys we just hunted with is going to get a depredation elk tag next year. I'm nice. going to take him through a shooting course and like make them part of the process rather than the problem. You know, cool. I think that's a, that's it. You know, just to bring it back to your um, notion of trapping. I, I think that if people saw the way in which it works and the passion that these old timers have for wildlife, you're not going to find a guy that's like, I hate coyotes. Yeah. They're probably going to be infatuated with coyotes because right. they've been dodging their footholds for yeah. you know years. But I just think there's this strange like idealization of what we've made hunting and trapping and fishing even to be. Yeah. It's just not, it's not uh, realistic, yeah. you know? Well, there's a lot of good going on. Yeah. There's a little absolutely. bit of bad, but if you, if you feel like you want to step into this ring and, and make it your profession, man, Kevin just gave you some pretty solid, solid advice. So you might go back and, uh, practice listening Yeah, and, uh, listen through that one more time and make yourself a plan and, and execute it. Yep. And yep. If, if this is your dream, then do it. Absolutely. And that's the thing is like, I'm willing to talk to anybody about it. I think that's the only reason I'm here is because I ask questions about it. Um, and probably the same for yourself, right? I mean, it's like, you have to understand what you're trying to achieve, put a plan together and people are going to listen to you. Um, but like I said, if any, anybody wants to talk about it, how to, how to essentially like break into the industry, how to have a foot in the door or whatever it looks like, we should talk to those people because I think it's beneficial for the, the whole, how do they get a hold of you? Um, you can find me on Instagram at heavy Kevy. Did you notice that change with some underscores underscores on either side? Did somebody have, yeah, heavy? they did. <laughs> There's not a lot of options. Um, uh, or Kevin at firstlight.com. Happy to, okay. happy to chat. And if you look, um, in this podcast description, so wherever you like clicked on the podcast, there'll be a paragraph down there. Um, it's describing sort of what we're talking about. If you look at the bottom of that, there will be a hyperlink that has um, Kevin's Instagram and his email, and you can uh, you can hit him up. He's a nice guy. Pretty Fam- nice. Famous. Famously nice, I would say. Oh, you think? Yeah. That's a nice compliment. That's something that people say about say about you. Nice. Yeah, that Kevin, he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah. I don't think I want to be described as like, the old, like he's a nice guy. Like, yeah. yeah. He's a nice guy and... Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He didn't return my email. Yeah. Sorry. Been on the road a little bit. I'll get to it. Yeah. We need to get away from this immediacy too. Absolutely. Yeah. That office is the greatest thing ever invented. I want to meet the guy that like coded that into Gmail. (laughs) Shake his hand. (laughs) All right, brother. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's good catching up. You too. So I found this old ad and there's like, dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and you know they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff aladdin stanley thermos stanley the tough all steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable
they're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bombing year after year. <laughs> Get the top one. Oh, lands in a wheelbarrow. Guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just, like, telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. Encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there. Have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.